Good morning, church. For those of you who are visiting, welcome to Shelburne Street Church of Christ, where we take God very seriously and ourselves much less so, Um, but treat each other with great love. (laughs) Ah, It's good to be with you this morning. Um, good uh, Good to see everybody here. This week and next week, we're going to be spending some time talking about communion. And it came out of some conversations that have happened, uh, that have been in our church, just kind of about, you know, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And I think, I think anytime we start asking ourselves the question of what are we doing in church and why are we doing it, it should be something that we explore and we, and we, we talk more about it, especially, I think, as Daniel said, if there's, if there's doubts, if there's confusion, or if there's misunderstanding, it's something that we talk about more not less. And, and I, was, I was putting together this, this sermon and it very quickly morphed into two sermons uh, because I went, there's no way I can pack in everything about what happens when we partake of the body and blood of Jesus into one sermon. And the Holy Spirit was kind of tapping my shoulder going, hey man, you can't even do it in two. Uh, you know, it's kind of, it's amazing and it's wonderful and it's mysterious and it's majestic. So uh, don't don't try to cram it all in. So this is not going to be the end all be all about communion. What this is is much much like what we've talked about before. This is an invitation to something bigger. This is an invitation to experience something larger. And so um, I hope you'll I hope you'll join with me in that invitation to dive deeper into the presence of Jesus among us. There is a story about Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas was one of the, probably the premier, uh, probably most influential medieval theologian um, of his time. Uh, his Summa Theologica is still kind of the, the baseline, um, if you are a part of the Catholic Church, for how you understand theology. Um, and it's a, it's a fantastic work. I've read some of it, and it boggles my mind how this guy came up with these deep theological understandings, you know, close to a thousand years ago. Um, but there's a story at the end of his life. He was, he was at the altar in the monastery where he was serving, praying, preparing himself to lead the communion service. And he had a vision of Christ actually speaking to him from the crucifix at the front of the church, saying, Thomas, you've spoken and written well of me. What would you have as your reward for your service? I'm really glad Jesus doesn't ask me questions like that. I, I mean, I think I've, I've got, the, I've got the, 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 the answers that I know I wouldn't, at, like, respond with. Like, I want a Maserati, Jesus. Like, I wouldn't, like, the, like the, I've got those ones down. But, but what about, the, the, what about the, the, the answers that could be good but not great? You know? I'd like to have I'd like to have more wisdom, or I'd like to have more understanding of you, or or I'd like to have more opportunities to preach about you, or I, you know what? What do you say if Jesus was going to say to you, "What would you have as your reward for your service?" And this is what I appreciate about this story is that with without much hesitation at all, Thomas said this: "Domine nom nisite, Lord, nothing if not you." Hmm. It's actually, um, not only has it kind of become the motto for the, the, the uh, branch of the Dominican uh, friars of which Aquinas was a part, it's kind of on their, like their crest, nothing if not you, Lord, but it's also a part of, 
of their communion service now, where when they come to partake of the body and the blood, there's this question and answer, you know, what is it that we seek? Nothing if not you, Lord. And I, and I want to keep that phrase kind of up in the front of our minds as we explore this, just to ask ourselves this question, um, how, how does that statement define our experience, not just of the act of communion, not just of this idea of, of this thing that we do regularly, coming to the table, coming to, to partake in this action of, of taking bread and taking the fruit of the vine and those things being something bigger than what they are. But what about just discipleship in general? How does that shape us, you know, this, this idea of nothing if not you, Lord? And it might be kind of interesting for me to go to John to talk about communion. Um, because if you look in the Gospel of John, spoiler alert, John doesn't have any record of the Last Supper. Okay? I don't know, maybe you didn't know that. Okay? It's interesting, John, John has no record of the Last Supper because John, uh, John doesn't want to have the Passover happen without Jesus because John says Jesus is the Passover lamb. Okay, there's not going to be a Passover lamb except for Jesus in the Gospel of John. Um, he's writing with a purpose, right? And his purpose is to show who Jesus is and what he's about so that we may have eternal life. And so he gears everything toward that. So he doesn't specifically speak about the like like the other gospels do of you know this is my body this is my blood but this is not this is not about uh, this is not to say that John is not interested or he doesn't believe in in fact John is very very interested he's he's less interested in recording what happened as he's recording what happens to us when we participate in fact everything about the gospel of John is about driving us to the point where, like Thomas, we bag on Thomas because we call him like the doubter, right? But you know what? John would really like us to be in Thomas's position, honestly. He would love for us to be at the point where we fall to our knees before the risen Lord and we say, my Lord and my God. You are, you are my Lord and you are my God. And everything about the Gospel of John is pushing us that direction. John 6 starts with, um, a couple of different signs, a couple of different miracles of Jesus. And, and we have to look at these before we can understand this whole conversation that Jesus is have, having with, with the people there about this is, my, this is my body, you know, my, I am the bread of life and my flesh is real food, okay? To understand that. So, if you're, so we're going to be going through John 6. So if you've got your Bibles, walk with me through John 6, Okay. John 6 starts with, like I said, it starts with two miracles. Both of them, this is the interesting thing about John too, okay? Just a, another side note. Jesus does fewer miracles in the Gospel of John than he does in any of the other Gospels. He only does seven, okay? One of them including resurrection, okay? But the miracles are bigger, and the miracles are always very, very intentional, they're, they're pointing to who he is as fulfilling the Messiah expectations, and also they display his identity as the Logos, this, this word that existed before time, who was with God, who was God, without whom nothing is created that has been created. 
Okay, they're always pointing at something. They're not just displays of his power, but they're again, they're driving us to that confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. But here's the thing about the signs of Jesus and John. They only work when they are accepted in conjunction with the words of Jesus. And what you're going to see very, very quickly is that there are some people in the gospel of John who see the signs and don't believe. And then there are other people who hear Jesus and then the signs just reinforce their belief. And for John, it's like, do you actually hear Jesus and what he's saying to you or do you just believe the signs? Are you taking Jesus as he is or are you taking Jesus as you want him to be? That's the real key here. And this is what we're going to see unfolding in these two stories. So in John 6, 1 through 15, we have the feeding of the multitude. And it's really, I mean, he clues us in right away. He says, this happens during Passover. That should really make us go, oh, okay, what's going on here? All right? The crowds are following Jesus. Again, it says right at the beginning, the crowds are following him because of the signs, because of all the miracles he's done. Again, we should go, oh, okay, so this is not going to end well for the crowds. And this is not going to end well for them accepting Jesus. Because they're not following because of who he said he is. They're following because of signs. Okay? Jesus takes them out and is teaching them. He's talking about who he is, but they're following him because of the signs. And he says to his disciples, where are we going to get food for all these people to eat? And it's a test, because he already knows what he's going to do, right? And the disciples kind of, yay, verily, verily, freak out. Are you kidding? It's going to take like eight months worth of a person's wages just to provide one meal for all these people. And Jesus goes, no, that's okay. Just go figure out what you got. Go, go find something and bring it back to me. And they come back with these barley loaves and fish. And we know what happens, right? Like Jesus multiplies out the food. Um, there are 12 basketfuls for John. That's important because it's, it's gathering in all of Israel, right? Like all the leftovers are coming in. Um, the kingdom is open because, because the one who is providing sustenance is there. And so there are, none, there are none left over. There are none left out in the fields. Everybody's welcome and everybody's coming in to the feast, right? And here's the thing. If you look down toward the end of John, of, of this, this exchange. After the people saw the miraculous signs, verse 14, that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. After they saw the signs, they made an assumption and they said, surely this is the prophet that's coming into the world. Is Jesus the prophet that's coming into the world? Kinda, but more. Because he's not the prophet that's coming into the world. He is the word made flesh. He's bigger than that. And it says in verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That doesn't make any sense if you don't understand that it's Passover. What is Passover about? Interactive sermon time. What is Passover about? Huh? It's about salvation. It's about liberation. What else is it about? 
It's about the beginning of the covenant with God that defines the identity of Israel. Once we were not a people, now we are a people. Once we were slaves, now we are free. What is happening to Israel during this time with Jesus? They're enslaved again, right? They still see themselves as in exile. They're not the people that they think that they need to be. And, and, and truthfully, they are in exile. They are in need. And God has sent their salvation and God has sent their liberation. So let's think about this. During the Passover, God leads them out into the wilderness. Right? It's the remembering of Exodus. God leads them out into the wilderness. And what happens out in the wilderness? He feeds them. So now all of a sudden, here it is, Passover, and one who appears to be appointed with authority by God leads them out into the wilderness to teach them, and he feeds them. Oh, who is it? It's Moses again. He's going to come liberate us just like he has before. Let's all make him king, and let's go back and kick some Roman booty. Woo! And Jesus does this thing that he's so good at doing. Jesus is very slippery in John. Have you noticed this? Like people try to grab Jesus and he's like, whoop, whoop, nope, sorry, going to the mountain. You know, like it's amazing. And Jesus knows what's going to go on. They are going to try and take him and make him their king. Who's the driving force behind this? Is it Jesus? No, it's people's expectations. Now, move to John 6, 16 through 24. He goes up to the mountain. The disciples don't really know what to do, so they go, ah, let's cross the lake. Sure, why not? So they cross the lake to get away from all the people that are going like, where's Jesus? Tell us now. And the storm comes up, and the waters get rough. And Jesus comes out to them walking on the water. It's very interesting to me, like, in John, this, you know, there's nothing like, you know, there's no big waves, and Jesus, don't you care, we're going to die, or anything like that. He just goes walking out to them. And there's not even this big, you know, peace, be still, and everything calms down. Jesus just goes out walking to them. And when they see him, they're already afraid, and when they see him, they're scared to death, and then Jesus, what? Speaks. And we have it as, it is I, don't be afraid. You know, like somehow he's like, it is I, don't be afraid. You know, we miss what's going on there. The Greek there, ego and me, I am. Don't be afraid. Whew. If the hairs don't stand up on the back of your neck when you hear that, okay, in the middle of all of their fear, in the middle of all of their anxiety, in the middle of all their doubt, in the middle of this big, rough sea, this thing that they can't comprehend, can't understand, can't even get a grasp of, comes toward them, and they get even more afraid because of their situation. And then he speaks to them and says, I am is here. Don't be afraid. And what do they do? Their fear turns to joy. They welcome him in the boat. And it says, and immediately everything calmed down and they got to where they were going. John's like, and everything else worked out just fine. Don't worry. 
Why? Because the important part was not how the situation resolved itself. The important part was that when Jesus was in their midst and said, I am who I am, they received him in. They welcome him in as he is. And that becomes their salvation. So on the one hand, you have a people who are trying to take Jesus and make him king in their image. And then you have another group of people over here who even tossed by doubt and fear and afraid and vulnerable and scared are willing to take Jesus as he is. And he is their salvation. You have to understand that to understand what Jesus is saying here. Chapter 6, verse 26. Okay? The crowds go looking for Jesus. Why do they go looking for Jesus? Jesus already knows why they're looking. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, in verse 25, they ask him, Rabbi, how did you get here? Or when did you get here? Or why did you run away? That's really what they're asking. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not even because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The crowds aren't here for Jesus. They're here for what Jesus provides. And this is the crucial difference, I think, between a disciple and somebody who's just a fan of Jesus. Somebody who's just a member of the crowds. This is, this is crucial for John. Okay? And this is crucial for us. And this is why this talk of I am the bread of life is not going to go well with the crowds. This is why most of them are going to say, this, I can't handle this. Okay? It's not just because he's talking about something that seems a little bit visceral, and a little bit gross, because I think we've gotten a little desensitized to this, okay? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, okay? Think about that for a second. Anybody watched any, like, Horror movie, horror movies recently. You can. It's confession time in church. You can. It's okay. We're not gonna. We're not gonna make you come up at the end. Okay. Ew. Think about this for a second. Eating flesh and drinking blood. Ew. Everything within me goes ew. No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that. That's gross. And it has the same effect because they don't understand what Jesus is saying, and they don't understand where he's going with this. The whole conversation between the crowds and Jesus, I can sum it up in about like five sentences. Jesus, give us what we think we need so that we won't be hungry anymore. Jesus, I'm what you need. Crowds, no, 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 not you. Give us what we think we need, Jesus. Give us the stuff that we need. No, Jesus, no, you don't understand. You don't need the stuff I provide that you think that I provide. What you need is me. You need all of me in you. Crowd. I can't deal with this anymore. I mean, that, that's really the entire conversation. It goes back and forth a lot, but that's really where it goes. And the key is this. 
says Jesus at the beginning of our reading in, in, in verse 48. There is a manna. There is a, there is a, I don't know what it is, but it comes from God that you can take in all your life and still die. There is, there is a bread of life that you can feast on every Sunday for the rest of your life and still be dead. That should be a very, very sobering thought to us. I mean, but that's what he says. He's like, look, your forefathers were in the presence of God. They were in the presence of Moses. The bread of heaven came down from them every single day. They gathered it up and they had their fill. And they still died in the wilderness. Why? Why? Because there's a bread of life, a bread of life that you can feast on your entire life and still die. And then there's a bread of life. There's a manna that you can take into yourself and truly live. Don't confuse the two. What are they? The manna that you can take all your life and still die is Jesus as we want him to be. The manna that you take into yourself and truly live is Jesus as he is. And I think this is true of both communion and discipleship as a whole. Have we asked ourselves what is happening during communion recently? What is happening when we come and we, and we take of the bread that is his body and we take of the cup that is his blood? You want to know what my answer is for you? I don't know. I don't know what is happening. I have brothers and sisters of a certain persuasion that will say, that, that when we that, that, that when someone prays and says this is and the Lord said this is my body and this is my blood that something actually happens to the essence of what that is and it literally somehow becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. I have brothers and sisters of another persuasion that will say no that's not what happens it is representative it is symbolic of something spiritual that is happening wherever you fall on that scale it, i mean either either to just say no it's just symbols is too easy of an answer and to just say no it just goes you know and magically like becomes something else hocus pocus you know like you know where that came from right i'm going to rabbit trail oops do we know where hocus pocus came from all right. Hocus pocus came from the Latin phrase ad hoc em corpus. This is my body. Because of the belief that when the priest held it up and said, This is my body, boom, it actually became the body. And people couldn't understand Latin, and so it became hocus pocus. Ad hoc em corpus. See? Useless facts. I'm full of them, okay? Why does that matter, Travis? 
because it's not that something, it's not that there's anything magical necessarily about the bread or about the cup itself, but there is something wonderful happening when we come together and we receive Jesus as he is. John says we are experiencing intimacy with the risen Christ, the eternal Logos, the word that existed before time is with us. Listen to the words of Jesus again in, 50, in verse 53. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. There is something about this that is our life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day for my flesh is true, real food. My blood is true, real drink. It actually brings life. And so whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Do you remember Remember later on in John 13, he's going to talk about being the true vine and he says, You must remain in me and I in you because apart from me, you are dead. And apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the thing about the manna that you can take in your entire life and still die is that you can can do all of this religious stuff. You can do all of these religious observations. You can be at church every single time the doors are open and you can go, go do all of these things and you can go all of these places and you can serve in all of these ways and you can suffer all of these things. You can live, you can craft this really holy looking life. And Jesus says, ah, you missed the point. The point was not to craft a life that you think that I would be proud of. The point was for you to come and encounter me and to dive deeper into me and surrender more to me and to stay stuck to me because that is where your life is, is in me. Remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is serious stuff we're talking about here, right? It's mysterious stuff. If you're asking me how it happens, I don't know. What I know is that it happens. And what I know is that it's life. It's the life I need, not the life I think I need. And that's why we do it. Let's just think for a second about how this squares with some of the other things that we read in Scripture about it. In the other Gospels, Jesus Jesus will say, do this in remembrance of me. Sometimes I think we've turned communion into a memorial service, unfortunately, to our detriment, okay? We've turned it into remembering the thing that happened a long time ago that Jesus did to secure my salvation now. And I think it's because we, again, it's, it's words. Words are funny things. Words change over time. 
This word remember, we think the opposite of remember is to forget. The opposite of remember is to dismember. Remember. Bring back together. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's not asking you to recall. Actually, if you think about it, this is what happens when your brain actually remembers something. Is it takes this fact that was kind of like separated way off back somewhere in the deep storage of your brain, right? And it goes and it sets it back in its context. It puts it back in its place. It makes it whole again. It completes it back into your your thought process again, right? It actually puts the pieces back together and makes it whole. As often as you take this, remember me. What is actually happening? Communion is not where we recall the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is where we rejoin ourselves into the life of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is where we experience it now and the life that it provides. And Paul would put it this way. As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The thing I love about it is if if we're remembering Jesus, if he's actually coming back together and being here with us and he is here in this place, then Jesus is crossing time and space in communion. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we are taking this time, when we are engaging in this, we find ourselves at the foot of the cross with him. We find ourselves at the opening of the empty tomb with him. We find ourselves at the upper room where Jesus shows us the scars in his hands and his feet and says, put your hand in my side, stop doubting and believe, and drives us to our knees to say, my Lord and my God. We find ourselves on the beach with him, on the seashore, where he cooks us breakfast and says, do you love me? Then follow me. And we find ourselves at the wedding feast of the lamb that is coming. That great time when we're all going to be gathered from all times and all places. And the hands that were scarred are going to be the hands that serve at the table that he has prepared. And actually where he becomes both the bridegroom and the host and the feast and all of it. We get to be all of those places at once. There's something really, really majestic and mysterious and amazing that happens when we come together at the table of Jesus. And so with all of that, why would we find ourselves in the place of the crowd saying, this is a really hard teaching, who can accept it? I'll tell you why. (laughs) I'll tell you why. Because Jesus, as he is, is difficult. Jesus, as he is, is powerful and transformational. And sometimes he's really scary. And he asks a lot of me. 
He offers me everything, but he also asks for everything too. And a lot of times it's a lot easier for me to say, you know what, this is, this is really hard. I don't know if I can accept it. You know, the funny thing is, again, Greek, I love it. Okay? Their responses, we have it as, he's, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? You know what it literally says? This is a hard word. This logos is too hard. I don't think I can accept it. I'd rather make my own logos in my own image and accept that. This logos is too hard. And it says, from that point on, many of his disciples deserted him because they weren't really disciples. They weren't, they weren't able to accept him as he is. And then he turned to those that were remaining and said, what about you guys? Do you want to go too? And I hear Peter's response, and, and I don't think Peter's response is full of a lot of like bravado, right? I think it's more kind of like, I, man, Jesus, I where else am I going to go? Where else am I going to go? You are, you are powerful and challenging and mysterious, and I don't understand you. But where else am I going to go? You're, you have the logos of life. This, this, this amazing, powerful word that is God that existed before creation, that's you, and it brings life. And I, where else am I going to go? I'm scared. I don't feel worthy. My life's a mess. I don't understand you. But where else am I going to go? There is no better story. There is no better word for my life. And so as we as we kind of wrap this up and we're going to we're going to we're going to worship and then we're going to bring the kids in. Cuz now we're going to try and explain to the kids what happens. We'll see how that goes. But I want to take you back to last week. When Jesus was holding up the coin, remember? Whose image is on this? Whose inscription is on this? Okay, well then give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. And we said, you know, how do, how do we live this idea out of, of bearing God's image well and, and, and having him inscribed on our being, having his name inscribed on our hearts again? I think it starts here. I think it starts at coming to the one who says, I am the bread of life. Take me in as I am. Every single week that we come to the table, we take in his image. And let it transform us. Whose image are you reflecting? Today you get to come to the table again and you get to take his image. Whose name is inscribed on your heart? Today you get to come and commune to be joined in union and in intimacy with the risen Jesus and let him write his name on your heart again. That's what we get to do. And so may we prepare to come to the table together. Amen? Amen.